good morning. It is indeed good to be here with you. It was great being here, really, all weekend. Um, but excited about sharing the Lord's Day um, with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of Genesis. Open them to the book of Genesis. And as you, as you open there, um, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, oftentimes as I'm introduced as the Dean of the School of Divinity at ACU um, in, in Zambia, um, sometimes we'll forget to give more of an explanation than that and afterwards people will come up and they'll compliment me on my, my English and, uh, and uh, I will tell them, well, I mean, you know, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, so we don't speak the best English in the world, but thank you. Um, yeah. I, uh, as I said, was born and raised here. I was born and raised in South Central LA and born to a single teenage Buddhist mother. Didn't grow up going to church. Um, never heard the gospel until I got to university. And um, when I got old enough to find a little trouble or for a little trouble to find me in South Central, um, my mother shipped me out. And uh, I got on a bus, Greyhound bus, three and a half days, went from Los Angeles to Beaufort, South Carolina, where I then spent the next year living with our oldest brother who was a retired drill instructor in the Marine Corps. Hoorah. And, and I got out of trouble. Um, and, uh, yeah. and um, went from there to, to the promised land, the great state of Texas. And um, spent, you know, much of my life there until um, the Lord called me my wife Bridget and our, our seven youngest children. Um, yes, the seven youngest. We have nine. Yeah, we, are, we have nine kids. And uh, seven years ago, the Lord called us to, uh, to go to Lusaka in Zambia to help start the African Christian University. And uh, we've been there uh, ever since. It'll be seven years in August um, that, that we've been there. And we've um, been privileged to be a part of the work that the Lord is doing there to, uh, to raise up a university uh, to impact not only that nation, but to impact the nations. Um, so please, if you think about us, pray for us and, um, and the work that we've, been, that, we're, that we've been called to do. Um, but if you have your... If you have your Bibles with you, open them up, the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at a familiar story in Genesis. One of the interesting things about not growing up in church, right, and, and not growing up with all the, the, the Bible stories is that, you know, I, I tend to often read them differently. And when I say read them differently, what I mean is, you know, when we're familiar with things, um, oftentimes 
oftentimes we can, we can miss details, right? Have you ever read, I'll give you an example, have you ever read a passage of scripture that you memorized, but when you read it, there's a word or two that's in there that you hadn't been quoting when you quote the verse that you memorize? You 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 any, anybody? Yeah, we do that, right? Again, when we're familiar with things, we tend to do that. And that's often true when we look at familiar stories, especially familiar stories in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a familiar story in the Old Testament, but try to look at it with fresh eyes. And as we look at this story, it might look a little different. In fact, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. We're familiar with the story of Joseph. And usually when we look at the story of Joseph, because we read the Old Testament like it's Aesop's fables, right? You read the story and then you try to find the moral of the story. And so, you know, we, we, we read the story of Joseph and we see Joseph, you know, the faithful son who's hated by his brothers, you know, and then they put him in the pit to sell him into slavery and, you know, and then, then, he, then he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house and then he goes from Potiphar's house to prison, all because of his faithfulness. And then the next thing you know, he's elevated from prison and he, you know, he's Pharaoh's right-hand man, and now all of a sudden he's, he's number two in charge in the most powerful nation in the history of the world to date. Up to the time of Joseph's story, Egypt is the most powerful nation the world has ever seen. And here he is, he's number two. And so he's, this, this is the way we read the story, and this is the way we tell it to our children. Listen. Here's a story about a young man who was faithful, and because he was faithful, God blessed him. And here he is with power and position because God blessed him. Okay. But what if I told you that that was not the point of Joseph's story? In fact, what if I took it a step further? and told you that that was almost the exact opposite of the point of Joseph's story. What if I didn't just tell you that? What if I actually showed you that that is almost the exact opposite of the point of Joseph's story? Now, before you get up and run out of here, It's a great story. Okay? It's a great story. And we're about to do some Inigo Montoya theology <laughs> with the story. You know, Inigo Montoya, Princess Bride, right? You, you keep on reading this story. I do not think it means what you think it means. But, I think it's actually better than what we think it means. But before we get to it, let me just give you some background so that we can understand the book of Genesis and how it is that we're to be reading in the book of Genesis. There are a number of ways that you can divide the book of Genesis. 
One way that you can divide the book of Genesis is into these, these scenes. They're, 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 they're called in the Hebrew toledots, right? It, it, the generations of. And 11 times we see this phrase in Genesis. And every time the story takes a new turn and a new point of emphasis, we have another toledot. In chapter 2, verse 4, it's the generations of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, the generations of Noah's sons. Chapter 11, verse 10, the generations of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 27, the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, verse 12, the generations of Ishmael. Chapter 25, verse 19, the generations of Isaac. And then chapter 36, verse 1, and again in chapter 36, verse 9, it's the generations of Esau. And there's one more Toledot in the book of Genesis, and only one more. There's only one more division. So the last key character in Genesis, not Joseph, Genesis 37 and 2, the generations of Jacob. So based on even the literary structure of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph is not about Joseph. It's about Jacob. Okay? There's another way that we can look at the book of Genesis. And it's really by these recurring themes. There are three themes that recur over and over and over in the book of Genesis. And they're like, they're like lampposts for us. And they're the themes of land and seed and covenant. From the beginning, even in the, the, the creation account, right? It, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth. We have the land, right? And, and then he creates, you know, the, the, the plants and, and, and all of these plants from their seeds and everything, you know, multiplies by this seed. And, and then, of course, after that, in chapter 2, you get the man, and so we get the covenant. And first, we get the covenant of works, right? So we see land, and we see seed, and we see covenant. We see that in creation. We also see that in the fall. We see that in the fall, man is kicked out of that land. But there is a covenant, and in that covenant, there's a promised seed. And again, and again, and again, Every time there is a repeat of this covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, what do we have with Abram? He's not Abraham yet. What do we have with Abraham or, or Abram before he's Abraham? We have this covenant. What is this covenant about? Well, I'm going to make you a nation, seed. And I'm going to give you a land. Land, seed, covenant over and over and over again. And then this promised seed continues to move toward the promised land, the land that is theirs by covenant. Land and seed and covenant. So if we put those two things together and think about the book of Genesis, let's read this story again don't assume, but let's read it. Can we, can we, 
This is yes. This is yes. We all right? Still with me? Don't leave. Don't leave. I know because some of y'all are like, he's about to mess up my favorite story in the Bible. I'll see you next week. Don't do it. There's good stuff here. So now we're going to read it. So here we are. Joseph, there's three sets of dreams, three pairs of dreams actually in Joseph's life. First, there's this pair of dreams that he shares with his brothers. (laughs) Yeah, doesn't go so well. His brothers hate him. They despise him. They already despise him because he's the favorite son. He gets the fancy robe. And now there's this dream and this, you know, this dream, you know, that, what, we're, we're all going to bow down to you. And so they get the opportunity and they decide in their jealousy that they are going to kill him. But they don't. Instead, they sell him into slavery. Again, this is because of these dreams. When he's in prison, there's another pair of dreams. Two servants of the king, two servants of Pharaoh, and he interprets their dreams. One, excellent. (laughs) The other, not so much. You're getting your job back, you're going to die. And it happens. And then Pharaoh has two dreams. And he cannot interpret these dreams. And all of a sudden, the king's servant remembers the one in prison who can interpret dreams. And so Joseph comes and he interprets the dreams, right? The dreams about the healthy corn and the sick corn and the healthy cows and the sick cows. And all of a sudden, here comes the sick corn eating the healthy corn and the sick cows eating the healthy cows. And he says, there's going to be a famine. There's going to be years of plenty. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. So what you do is you store up during those seven years of plenty so that you can have grain, seed, during the seven years of famine. And that's where we'll pick it up here in Genesis 41, 37. Before you look down, look at me. We're not assuming this story. We're reading it. And we're reading it like people who haven't read it before. And as we read it like people who haven't read it before, what I want you to see is the irony in what we're about to read. Because when you see the irony in what we're about to read, you will see my point. More importantly, you'll see the author's point. Moses' point here is almost the exact opposite of what we've come to assume. Look at the irony there beginning in verse 7. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Stop right there. This is ironic. Why is it ironic? Why do his brothers hate him? His brothers hate him because God gives him a dream. 
He interprets the dream rightly, which means he gives his brothers the word of God. And they not only don't believe Joseph, but they hate him because of the word that came. Now he stands before a pagan king, the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I believe you. That's irony. That's irony. It's meant to be ironic. By the way, that's not good. It's not good that the covenant people of God don't believe God's messenger, but this pagan believes God's messenger. That's a problem. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. By the way, when he says the spirit of God and when he says God has shown you this, uh, he thinks he's a God. So don't, don't get confused here. He's not talking about Yahweh. He is saying that this is supernatural, that this is even divine, but he's not saying that he believes that this is Yahweh who's doing this. Verse 40, you should be over my house. Stop. Every house that Joseph serves prospers. Amen? Riddle me this, Batman. Whose house is Joseph supposed to be prospering? Jacob's. So when we read Pharaoh saying, you shall be over my house, what we're supposed to be reading is wrong house. This is not a good thing. You don't believe me. That's okay. There's more. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. What are the themes? Land, seed, covenant. What land is Joseph supposed to be in? He's supposed to be in Canaan. He's supposed to be in the land of promise. By the way, in the overall story of the Bible, Canaan is the land of promise. What land in the Bible's story is the theological opposite of Canaan? Egypt. Wrong house, wrong land. Do you think Moses is trying to say this is a good thing? Let's keep reading. Some of you are still not convinced. Let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Hmm, wrong robe. How was Joseph identified at the beginning of the story? by this robe that his father put on him. He's in the wrong house. He's in the wrong land. He's wearing the wrong robe. And essentially, he now has the wrong father. Again, not good. If we're reading this honestly, how can we at this point be saying, Moses is trying to lead us to the conclusion that this is the blessing. 
And he made him to ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. There's another great irony. His brothers want to kill him. Why? He has these dreams that seem to imply that they're going to be bowing the knee to him. And his brothers would rather kill him than bow the knee to him. But the pagan king says, bow the knee. And the Egyptians gladly do it. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah. Wrong name. He has a covenant name that identifies him with the covenant people of God. Now a pagan king gives him a pagan name. Here's what's interesting to me about the way we read this story. We read this story in a way that completely contradicts the way we read other parts of the Bible, and we don't even get it. Because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the Babylonians give them new names, and we don't go, wow, what a blessing. Right? We don't, we don't think that this is a great thing, that these guys are brought into this land and given new names. That's an insult. It's an insult to the people of God and an insult to the God of the people to rename them, to take their covenant names that point to their affiliation with Yahweh and give them pagan names that point to their affiliation with pagan gods. Why do we see that when Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are all of a sudden called, you know, Belshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro? Why, why is it? Why is it that we see that and we say no, but we see this one and we just completely miss it? Moses is not saying that this is good. But wait. There's more. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Wrong wife. Not only is she a pagan, she's the daughter of a pagan priest. How, how come? How come? Right? Ezra, we get, you know, put away these foreign wives. Not because they're foreign. Not because of their ethnicity or their nationality, because if that was the case, Moses would have been in trouble, right? No, 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 no. Because of their theology. How is that true in that part of the Bible, but not true in this part of the Bible? In that part of the Bible, it's a problem. In this part of the Bible, we go, yes, kids, you too can be like Joseph. If you're faithful, you can end up in the wrong land in the wrong house, with the wrong father, wearing the wrong robes, with the wrong name, and the wrong wife. Hallelujah! <laughs> so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now, I hear you. 
Maybe you're saying, you know, that, whatever. I, I'm not convinced. I'm not, maybe, 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 okay, fine, whatever. It's kind of a little complicated, but I'm not convinced that this means that I'm reading this story wrong. I, I just, maybe, no, I just don't. Okay, fine. Let's look at the next part of the story. If you don't believe me and my reading of the first part of the story, would you believe Joseph? Let's keep reading. Verse 41. Or, I mean, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea. By the way, when God made the promise to Abraham about his offspring, what did he say they would be like? The sand of the sea. There's a point being made here. Until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. So now he's got two sons. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The names of these sons make the same point that a proper reading of the earlier paragraph makes. First of all, notice that he gave his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian ones. This is an important point. He gave them covenantal names, seed, land, covenant. Joseph is identifying with the covenant. He's identifying with God's covenant people. This is an important note. But also not just that they're Hebrew names, but also the meaning of these Hebrew names. The, the first son's name is Manasseh. And the, the, the translation that we get here, you know, for God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It's interesting. If, if, I, were to, if I were to translate this, <laughs> the word Manasseh means I let that go. How would it work? Hey, Zephanath Panea, lovely day. Yes, it is a lovely day. I see that you and your lovely pagan wife have had a child. Yes, we have. Boy, you're living the dream. You know, here you were born, little peasant, shepherd boy. Now you're here in the most powerful nation that the world has ever seen. Number two in command. You got a wife. You got a child. You ride around in the second chariot. Wow. What's your boy's name? Manasseh. <laughs> really? Manasseh. That, that, that sounds Hebrew. It is Hebrew. 
But why would you give your boy a Hebrew name? Because I am a Hebrew. And because Pharaoh might be able to change my name, but he doesn't get to name my sons. And my sons are children of the covenant just like me. That's, that's interesting because, you know, why would you, why would you name your name after the Hebrew people who abandoned you? Because I let that stuff go. Didn't they sell you into slavery? Yes, but I let that stuff go. They never came looking for you. They never came to find you. You're absolutely right. And I let that stuff go. Joseph chose to be identified with the covenant people of God as opposed to being identified with the enemies of God. Joseph chose to think about his life through the lens of God's covenant promises and not through the lens of his past pain. He let that stuff go. Listen, some of us need a Manasseh. Amen? Some of us need a Manasseh. There are some of us who are holding on to things right now and identifying ourselves not as redeemed people of the covenant, but as damaged people from our past. And you need a Manasseh. You need to let that stuff go. Yeah, well, well, you know, I, 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 have, I have problems. I have trust issues. I have these issues. I have those issues. Manasseh, let that stuff go. That's not who you are. Yeah, but you don't know my past. I, I, I've been wounded in the past. I've been mistreated in the past. Yes, Manasseh, that's not who you are. The blood of Jesus can cover that. Let that stuff go. But if you think the name of his first son was powerful, just in case they didn't get the message, right? Ah, oh, Zephanath Pelea. I see you've had another son. I guess you gave him a Hebrew name too. Yes, I gave him a Hebrew name. What does his name mean? His name means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Wait. Okay, so, because I don't, um, because you became fruitful here. Which is, that's kind of weird, because the land of your affliction, wouldn't that be the place where they hated you, were going to murder you, and then put you in a pit so that you could be sold into slavery? Wouldn't that be the land of your affliction? No, that's not the land of my affliction. This is the land of my affliction. Why? Because I am part of the covenant people of God and the place for me to be is the land of the covenant. I don't care how wealthy this land 
appears to be. There is no wealth like being in the presence of Yahweh. So anything outside of his presence is the land of my affliction. You know, I'm, I'm asked frequently, like, you know, being, in, being an American and a holder of the magic passport, when people find out that you choose to live somewhere else, there's, there's always that question. Like, you know, Zambians ask me all the time, because Africans, most Africans will give vital parts of their anatomy to come here. In fact, most people everywhere in the world that's not here would give vital parts of their anatomy to come here. So when one of us chooses to go and live somewhere else, their first assumption is, ooh, you must have messed up bad, right? <laughs> Should you get kicked out? Did you, you know? And I love it when people ask me about that because I have an opportunity to tell them, listen, listen, let me tell you something. I, I, I am looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And until I get there, wherever I live is the land of my affliction. This is not my home. This is not as good as it gets. Our best day here pales in comparison to any day in glory. We are citizens of the New Jerusalem and this is not the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is going to be somewhere probably close to Texas. But again, now you know better than that. Not even Texas is it. Amen? This is the land of our affliction. But hold on. Be very careful, right? Because Joseph lives in that same tension that we live in. This is the land of my affliction, but I'm doing everything in my power to be a blessing to this land because it's where God has me right now. The Apostle Paul talks about this tension when he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Heaven is our home. But in the meantime, we man our post and advance the kingdom wherever the Lord has called us to be. But never getting too comfortable because wherever it is, no matter how good it may be, at the end of the day, it is the land of our affliction. So, again, maybe you weren't convinced by the reading of that first paragraph and all the irony that we saw there. And you said, yeah, whatever, I'm holding on to my interpretation. And I'm gonna continue to tell the story. Be faithful like Joseph and he'll raise you up and you'll be able to, <laughs> and then Joseph says, Joseph says that he doesn't even read his story that way. Joseph's not saying, if my brothers could see me now. I made it. Mama, we made it. This is it. No. Joseph says, this is the land of my affliction. Greatest country the world has ever seen. Most powerful country the world has ever seen. I'm number two in command. And this is not my home. 
Well, that leads us to a question and to my third argument. Because maybe, maybe, maybe somebody's out there going, yeah, whatever. I still don't read it like that. But, since I'm listening to you, if that's not the point, what is? What's the, what's the point of, of the Joseph story? I am so glad you asked. <laughs> Move forward in the story a little bit to chapter 45. Now, as you get to chapter 45, here's what has happened. Joseph's brothers have run out of food because of the famine, but they hear that there's food in Egypt. So they come to Egypt in order to get food. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. And so Joseph proceeds to test his brothers. The first test is tied to the very reason that Joseph was sold into slavery. One of the reasons that they hated Joseph was because Joseph was the son of the wife whom Jacob loved. That's what made him the favorite son. Joseph, I mean, Jacob was a terrible father. And he was open about this and essentially said to his boys, I love his mama. Yours, not so much. He's my favorite. You, not so much. But there was one more son born to the favorite wife, and that was Benjamin. When the brothers show up, Benjamin is not with them. So Joseph has no idea if they've done away with him too because of the same jealousy. So he tests him. He wants to know if Benjamin's still alive. You need to bring all the brothers. He also tests them to see if their character has changed by keeping one of the brothers there. See if they're gonna abandon him. And they don't. And then there's a final test. And the final test is he plants the goods, he takes Benjamin and he says, this one, this one's going to jail, y'all leave. He's staying. And then the final test, one of the brothers distinguishes himself by basically saying, take me instead of him. Now hold on to that and listen to Joseph's interpretation of these events. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine? They have no idea what's going on. Stuff keeps showing up in their bag. Their little brother's about to be kept here. Daddy's gonna die, like literally. We go home without Benjamin, he's gonna die. And now he says, hey guys, it's me, Joseph. Is my father alive? 
and they can't even answer. They can't even speak. Verse four, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you, can you imagine? Now they're like, okay. Dad probably will die. But we're going to die first. <laughs> and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And here it is. God sent me before you so that he could show you what happens when you're faithful. No. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph says, God sent me here to save you. But it's more specific than that. Seed, land, covenant. The fall happens in chapter 3. And then there's a covenant promise. And the covenant promise comes in the form of a curse. This curse of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to bruise your head. God makes this promise that there is one coming who is going to undo this curse. Next chapter is the first murder. The seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. Why do I say that Cain is the seed of the serpent? Because John says so in John chapter 3 verse 12. Do not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Well, now we got a problem because the promised seed has been murdered. That's all right. Right after that, we're introduced to Seth. And then in chapter 5, there are 10 generations between Adam and Noah through the godly line of Seth. The promised seed has been preserved. Now, Noah has three sons, but only one can be the promised seed. And eventually we find out that it is Shem who's the promised seed. Eventually we come to Abram, who is the promised seed. And then Abram has two sons, but only one of them can be the promised seed. Interestingly enough, his wife is beyond seed-bearing years, but miraculously, he still gets the promised seed. And so Isaac is the promised seed. And then all of a sudden, with Isaac, there are twins who come. Which one is going to be the promised seed? Is it the firstborn? No, it's not. It's the one who comes after him who's the promised seed. And so it's not Esau, it's Jacob. And now with Jacob, there are 12 sons. Which one of these sons is the promised seed? Well, we don't know. And it seems like the story focuses on Joseph. So you might think, actually, it's Joseph who's the promised seed, but he's not. Joseph is just there to preserve the promised seed. But who's the promised seed? Well, the promised seed identifies himself just before Joseph identifies himself to his brothers. And interestingly enough, the way 
the promised seed identifies himself is very telling as to why he's the promised seed. Benjamin is about to be kept behind and Judah, the promised seed, says to Joseph, it'll kill my father. So in essence, Judah, the promised seed, offers himself as a substitute in the place of the one whom his father loves. Which is exactly what the promised seed would do. Just like another promised seed, but don't run too fast. Because Judah has another son who identifies himself as a promised seed. You see, Judah's greater son, David, actually identifies himself as the promised seed one day when in the valley there is a giant who is challenging Israel and says, send me a man to fight with me. This is a battle of champions. I will represent my people. You send me someone who will represent your people. And so King David, before he's King David, goes down into the valley to face Israel's enemy as Israel's covenant representative. And while he's in the valley, he defeats Israel's enemy on behalf of all of Israel, which means that Israel is victorious because all of Israel is in him, the promised seed, when he wins this victory. And then there is a greater David who identifies himself as the promised seed to which all the other promised seeds point. And he does what Judah and what David did all in one fell swoop. He also offers himself as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sons whom his father loves. And then through dying a death that they deserved goes into that great valley and defeats the enemy on behalf of all of those who are in him by faith. You see, Joseph didn't go to Egypt so that we could tell our children, be faithful and you'll be rich and famous. Joseph went to Egypt so that Judah, the promised seed, wouldn't starve, so that David, the promised seed, could be born, so that Jesus, the promised seed, could save his people. That's the point of the story of Joseph. Not some moralistic, materialistic, rah-rah. No. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the providence of God. And by the way, saints, that's just good news. When we look at God's providence and see that God uses a famine, Right? What happens in the midst of a famine? Not only does God use a famine, but God uses slavery, prison, 
All of these kinds of things that would make us look and say, God, you've forgotten me. You've forsaken me. And providence says, don't you dare. You don't see the end of the picture. You're in the pit so I can save you. You're going to be a slave to Potiphar so I can save you. You're going to prison so I can save you. You're going to Egypt so I can save you. Because providentially, every last bit of this is necessary. So that I can deliver you from the land of your affliction. You see, it is this providence that gives us hope in the midst of our darkest days. It is this providence that says, no, this is not the new Jerusalem. No, this is not as good as it gets, but this is where the Lord has me, right here, right now. Saints, I, I don't know, I don't know who you are, what you're dealing with. Never met most of you, but I do know this. God always saves his people. Flee to Christ. Put your faith in him. Remind yourself of God's providence and all of the things that had to happen in order for Christ to even be born, let alone die for sin and raise again on the third day. And if God did all of that in order to rescue the sons and daughters whom he loves, how much more can we trust him in the midst of difficult circumstances? Have things been bleak lately? Yes, they have. God is good. But guess what? And hear me on this. When God turns these things around, and I believe that he will. Amen? When God turns these things around. And when all of a sudden there are answered prayers. And we can say, remember back in those days where things were so bleak. And times are just glorious. Don't forget, wherever you are in that moment, that's still the land of your affliction. And we're still not home yet. So what do we do? We make it as much like home as we can which is exactly what Joseph did in Egypt. Even in little things like the naming of his boys. Until God reveals what it is that he, through his providence, is accomplishing through your dark days. And when you don't see it, Just say, Manasseh. (laughs) Let's pray. Our 
good and gracious God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who made the world and everything in it. The God who created and sustains the universe. The God who holds the worlds in the palm of his hands. God, we bow before you as a humble and grateful people. Recognizing that you are good, even when our circumstances are not. Recognizing that you are sovereign and in control, even when we don't see what you're doing. Recognizing that you are indeed working all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purposes. Father, we pray that in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our darkest days, that you would grant us faith, that you would grant us hope, that we would be marked as people who trust you in spite of our circumstances. That you would mark us as a people who are citizens of heaven. And because of being citizens of heaven, we are magnificent citizens of any other place that you've called us to live. And we pray that our citizenship in heaven would make us a fragrant aroma to those who are around us. And Father, we do look forward with anxious anticipation to the coming of our great King, the King of kings and Lord of lords at the end of the age when all things will be made right. All things will be redeemed. In the meantime, grant us faith to live in that tension between the already and the not yet, where for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And grant that we might serve you with all the moments in between. For we pray these things and ask these things in that name that is above every name, in the name of the promised seed who crushed the head of the serpent, Jesus, our soon coming King. Amen.